This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, June 30th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump becomes the first sitting U.S. president to step foot in North Korea, greeting Kim Jong-un on his turf. Hey, I'm over here. I want to call Chairman Kim. This has been in particular a great friendship. That after the president announced the day before a temporary ceasefire in the U.S. trade war with China. We'll talk with top White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow. And Congress finally agrees to give the Trump administration nearly $5 billion to help with the migrant crisis at the border. Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham weighs in. Plus, Democrats face off against Democrats. I think that you should do your homework on this issue. I am the only candidate here who has passed a law protecting a woman's right of reproductive health. Hey, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. We'll talk with two presidential hopefuls who took the stage. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar and former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. All that coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with CBS News White House correspondent Weijia Jang, who is in Seoul, South Korea, where she has been covering the president's historic visit to North Korea. Good morning, Margaret. The suspense over whether President Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un would meet quickly turned into frenzy over a historic episode that lasted much longer than expected. In fact, even President Trump admitted he was surprised the meeting happened at all. President Trump and Kim walked toward each other from opposite sides of the joint security area in the DMZ, the demilitarized border zone that separates North and South Korea. After a handshake, Mr. Trump became the first U.S. sitting president to cross over the line of demarcation into North Korea, something he said he was proud to do. Then the two leaders met for nearly one hour, and it all came about because of a tweet President Trump sent yesterday, inviting Kim to the DMZ to say hello and shake hands. Kim said he was surprised at the gesture and by the president's willingness to see him there. President Trump described the meeting as strong and solid and said negotiating teams would be meeting in the next two or three weeks to start crafting a deal for Pyongyang to give up its nuclear weapons. He also said he would invite Kim to the White House, but did not provide a time frame for when. Margaret? Weijia Jiang in Seoul. We go now to some analysis on this morning's events. Jean Lee is director of the Korea Center at the Wilson Center. And Mike Morell is a former acting director of the CIA and CBS News senior national security contributor. Mike, we know the president's national security team was opposed to this. Did the meeting strengthen or weaken the U.S. position? Margaret, two different perspectives here, I think. Um, one is that a negotiated solution is the only solution to this problem. There isn't a military option. There's not a covert action option. So getting back to talks with the North Koreans is important, and I think that's a good thing. The second perspective, though, is this comes at a very high cost. This gives Kim Jong-un a lot of legitimacy. This is gold for him politically at home and in the world. And secondly, this is going to weaken sanctions enforcement against North Korea, because if you're another country, you're going to say to yourself, um, my companies don't need to pay a price. They're now getting along. You're going to step back a little bit. So we're paying a price for this, um, and it can't go on forever. But let's see if we can get something out of these negotiations. Gene, you've lived, you've worked in North Korea. Uh, What does this do for Kim Jong-un 
at home. Is he actually under much pressure to get things done? He is, and that's a very important point. It's so hard for us to tell what's happening inside North Korea because they do such a good job of keeping us out and of framing the photo or the narrative of North Korea. But the fact is, it is an extremely poor country. And we may not get that sense when we see that he's pouring so much money into nuclear weapons. We see these military parades and everything looks so organized and Pyongyang looks so modern. But we have to remember that they have an estimated GDP per person um, per year that is more along the lines of Congo or some of the poorest countries in Africa. This is a country that is suffering and he knows that. Uh, I do think he needs this and he wants this. So for me, it was only a matter of time that he would start, he and President Trump would start putting out feelers to get back uh, to these nuclear negotiations. I think there was a loss of face after Hanoi. And so he's looking for a chance to get back to that negotiating table. But Mike, even though there may be that pressure on Kim Jong-un and food shortages even, he's still charging ahead with his nuclear program. So... Two pieces to that. One is he's still making fissile material, so he's still adding to the nuclear stockpile, but he's not testing nuclear weapons and he's not testing missiles. You know, we know he has nuclear weapons. We know he has ICBMs capable of reaching the continental United States. The one thing he has not demonstrated is the ability to mate those two together, right? He, and he needs to test in order to, to convince himself that he can do that, let alone us. So the fact that he's holding back on that is important. Um, but the stockpile continues to grow. And Jean, you've been watching some of what Kim Jong-un is doing in the region. He's been meeting with Vladimir Putin. He's been meeting with Xi Jinping. He has some powerful friends other than the United States right now. So how much leverage does the U.S. have here? In fact, Russia and China did support the round, the latest round of UN Security, Security, Security Council sanctions that have been such a chokehold on North Korea's economy. And I think that was a major blow to North Korea. And so he was going to Putin and to Xi to see if he could get some sanctions relief. Doesn't sound like he got what he needed. Uh, and so in that sense, um, he is trying to tell his people at home, look, we do have, uh, I am meeting with them. We have a good relationship. They still have our back. But it does mean that if he does continue to build those relationships with Putin and Xi, it does take away from the leverage that President Trump has. I think that's something that we have to watch closely, the way that Kim Jong-un is very uh, savvily playing all these different relationships in the region. And Mike, it seems like the U.S. strategy has been to try to separate Kim Jong-un from some of his more hardline, old-school advisors the idea that he is so unique and President Trump is so unique that you could get this impossible deal, even though the U.S. intelligence community says he's not going to give up his nukes. What are the odds on this? So I don't think there's any way he's going to give up the entire program. I think the only possibility is significant limits on the number of nuclear weapons and the missile program, probably the distance that missiles can fly. Um, That's the best we can hope for. We should push for the whole thing, but the best we can hope for is limits. Containment. Containment. Thank you very much. We turn now to Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council Director, who joins us this morning from Connecticut. Larry, good to have you here. Uh, The president said he's not increasing tariffs on China, and he's allowing American companies to do business with Huawei. That essentially throws that tech firm a lifeline. What did the U.S. get for these concessions? Well, let's um, first of all, the talks are going to restart. I think that's a very big deal right there. Uh, No timeline, Margaret, but they are going to restart. Look, um, regarding the Huawei story, let me just try to clarify that. There will be sales from American companies, but, but only in the sense of the general merchandise, things that are available in other places around the world. Anything to do with national security concerns will not receive a new license from the Commerce Department. I think that's very important. I think people have to understand that. Stuff that's generally available uh, will will be probably getting a temporary license from the Commerce Department. We'll see how far that goes. Second point is we are hoping and expecting that China will engage in large-scale purchases 
of American uh, farm products and farm services. As the talks continue, the talks may not be uh, ending, the talks may not even be solved, but the president believes that China will begin to purchase American agriculture, and that's going to be a big boost to our farmers, and that would be a good faith show that these are serious talks and negotiations. But on those purchases that you say might happen, in the meantime, the existing tariffs still stay in place, so that means the retaliatory tariffs are too And even with this announcement of China potentially buying more product, according to the USDA, that market for soybean farmers won't recover until 2026 or 2027. Uh, They're losing markets the longer this goes on. So how much damage can America stomach? Well, look, that may be. I don't want to forecast that. We'll see if China steps in to fill void. Our farmers have been terrific. They're patriots. They support the president's um, dealings with China. Uh, strongest president we've ever had in U.S.-China relations. China's problems, you know, IP theft, forced uh, transfers of technology, problems with getting into cloud services, problems with tariffs, problems with non-tariff barriers. All these things are going to have to be addressed, and that's the only way it'll help the American economy It's a very unbalanced trading relationship, Margaret, as you may know. That has to be fixed. It's not going to be 50-50. They have many more remedies and correctives to make. And that's what President Trump said uh, in his news conference and elsewhere in this uh, recent trip to Japan. Now, having said that, with respect to the farmers, we are doing the best we can. We are providing uh, short-term assistance to keep them going and try to fill the void until we can get better Internet national markets, the farmers themselves, the farm groups, they've been great patriots, and we, uh, we celebrate their support to make America's overall economy very, very strong. And let's see if the Chinese make good on this promise. Uh, that'll have a bearing. You know, the right. president said on tariffs, let me make this point, he said, no additional tariffs for now. So he's going good faith to see how these talks go, to see if China delivers on an early agriculture uh, promise. Let's call it an early harvest. But that may be up for grabs. We will see. No one can uh, predict uh, with certainty. But but last time, my understanding is the talks were going well, and then China backed off of a perceived promise to change its laws. So is there any indication from China that they will make the kind of structural change to their own laws to make good on some of the changes you want to see happen on IP, et cetera. You're right about the problem. And they did pull back from some agreements we thought we had. And by the by, that also includes all manner of enforcement to whatever conditions are made. So you're quite right. Um, Can I sit here and tell you this all going to work out? No, we don't know that. The teams are going to start negotiating in earnest, Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary Mnuchin, uh, and others. But we don't know. This is just a new first step. I always think it's better to talk than not to talk. We have no assurances. And again, the president himself said several times, we want quality talks. There's no timeline here. The issue is quality, not speed. Well, so we will see if China delivers on some of these uh, significant reforms. Marco Rubio has been raising concerns, though, about what the president just agreed to do with Huawei, that tech firm. He said if President Trump has bargained away recent restrictions on Huawei, then the U.S. Congress will put them back in via legislation. Isn't this undercutting the president's negotiation? And why would the U.S. allow American companies to do business with a firm that is working on surveillance and a national security threat? Well, look, again, I I think Senator Rubio's concerns about all manner of national security are correct. They're proper concerns. And I hope that when President Trump comes back, that he and others of us will be able to persuade Senator Rubio that there will be no national security violations, that any additional licensing from the Commerce Department to American companies will be for what we call general merchandise, not national security sensitive. General merchandise meaning 
you know, various chips and software and other services that are available all around the world, uh, not specific to the U.S. But the president is not backing off on the national security concerns. We understand the huge risks regarding Huawei. And let me say, the president several times, we will fully address Huawei not until the end of the trade talks. In other words, that right. will come last and that will deal, you know, with much larger issues concerning the long term future with Huawei. So that's what's happening now is simply uh, a loosening up for general merchandise, maybe some additional licenses from commerce. It is not the last word. The last word is not going to come until the very end of the talks. This is a complicated matter. So I hope we'll be able to persuade Senator Rubio and others uh, that that uh, we are as cautious and concerned as they are. All right. Larry Kudlow. Thank you so much. We'll be back in one minute with a lot more Face the Nation. Don't go away. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Welcome back. We are now joined by Minnesota Senator and 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar. She joins us from Minneapolis. Good morning, Senator. Thanks, Margaret. Hello. We saw this historic moment with President Trump stepping into North Korea. And I wonder if your commander in chief, would you continue the diplomacy that he has started? You always have to talk to everyone uh, when it is American security and the world's security at stake. Uh, but he keeps having these summits and meetings that really don't produce anything. There's been a number of them now. And this time, uh, you know, you just can't look at this as uh, going over and talking to your uh, dictator next door and bringing them a hot dish over the fence. Uh, there's a lot more. And what this is about is making sure that there are measurable results, uh, that we have a plan when we go in there. And we just haven't seen that. In fact, just in May, you saw North Korea uh, launch another missile into the sea in violation of the U.N. resolution. And uh, to me, uh, you need to have a plan to uh, denuclearize that peninsula or at least reduce those weapons um, immediately. And I just don't see that happening. Yes. But yet we know that talks are good. But I just don't see this president. When you look at what happened in Iran, uh, when he got out of that agreement and we were 10 minutes away from war and a month away from them blowing the caps when it comes to uh, uranium, enriching uranium, uh, when you look what he did with the nuclear agreement uh, with Russia, um, he is constantly climate change, pulling us back from working mm -hmm. with our allies to try to solve these problems. You said there North Korea would denuclearize or at least need to reduce their arsenal. Would you accept them as mm -hmm. a nuclear power? I know I would not. What I'm saying is you need to have steps and measures and you would, could start there. And then, of course, you have dates and you have times and you have a focus and you have a plan. But that is not what he does. He goes and gets a letter and says, I love the guy, um, you know, right in the face of the warm bears who lost their son, Otto. So I am concerned just because of the track record here. Talk mm -hmm. is good. But if all it is is talk, it doesn't produce anything for national security for America and international security for our allies. As commander in chief, what would you do differently with China? What leverage would you use to get them to capitulate on trade? 
I would first acknowledge to the American people very clearly the problem here. Uh, the surveillance, uh, the intellectual property violations are basically stealing our blueprints. Um, what they have done uh, when it comes to subsidizing industries and manipulating their currency. The second thing that I would do uh, is to work with our allies and to push them. And I wouldn't have just walked away from every negotiating table months goes by. I think you have to keep at it methodically. And mostly, uh, I wouldn't have used the approach they've used. Yes, targeted tariffs, uh, but they have used basically a meat cleaver, or maybe we should call it a tweet cleaver, uh, when it comes to how they're dealing with these other countries. And when you talk to uh, Larry Kudlow, and he talked about the patriotism of our farmers, I'm in a very heavy ag state. Iowa, uh, my neighbor, is a heavy ag state. North Dakota. I've talked to farmers in those areas, and what they tell me is they're not going to get that soybean market back in one year, because that market has gone to farmers in other countries. Um, and so that's why there's an urgency to this. When we have an $891 billion uh, trade a deficit, mm -hmm. which is the worst that we've seen. Um, you can't just keep talking about it. You actually have to get it done. Uh, you heard me ask Larry Kudlow about uh, Republican senators' concerns about Huawei. You are a sitting senator. Would you vote to ban American companies from doing business with them? I don't think we should be doing business with them right now. Um, and I agree with my colleagues, not just Senator Rubio, but also Senator uh, Warner, Mark Warner, who is the ranking on the Intelligence Committee, um, that this is a major security risk for America. Um, you know, you look at everything from China to Russia using cyber against us. It is the modern warfare. We certainly know that from our elections in 2016. They may not use tanks or missiles, but they can go after our electric grid. They can go after our security in a very different way. Um, and so I don't know why he would just give that away right now. Um, I would think uh, that he would put firm, firm standards in place as part of any agreement with China. And that's not what we have. We just have another promise that they're going to buy American agriculture. Okay, that's positive, but I wouldn't give it up in that short-term gain for the long term uh, where we need to protect our security and our cybersecurity. I want to ask you about the debates this week. One question to many of your colleagues and competitors was whether their health care plan would cover undocumented immigrants. Would your plan do that? As part of comprehensive immigration reform, um, we must move forward on making sure that people have health care. Uh, California uh, just did that with uh, Medicaid, and I am supportive of that. But I think on the national basis, as we go forward, get immediate health care for people, yes. But as part of making this actually happen, you need comprehensive immigration reform. And one thing that was missing um, from the NBC debate, actually, that I hope we can discuss is that we have humanitarian crisis at the border right now. But we also did not talk about uh, the other immigrants that are here, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are here on temporary legal status. Uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of people that are legally here that are at risk or are being deported, that work in our nursing homes and our hospitals. Uh, we have got dreamers, two million of them, that came to this country through no fault of their own and are a major part of our economy. Um, so we need to have an economic discussion about this as well as a border discussion. Okay, and that's why I want to move forward as president with comprehensive immigration reform. So that was a yes, that your health care plan would cover that? That was a yes for immediate okay. health care needs. But as far as other benefits, I think we need to, that has got to be a part of the discussion of comprehensive immigration reform. Okay, because they were excluded from the existing Obamacare law. That is correct, yes. So you are, I mean, you, you call yourself a pragmatist. You're uh, in many ways perceived yes. as a moderate um, from the Midwest. Do you feel sometimes that the rest of the party is leaving you behind? That it's gone uh, no. so progressive. I think, I, I think I'm thinking the issues you're focused here on, for instance, Medicare for all. And I want universal health care. I just got a different way to get there. And as I said in the debate, I don't think uh, that we should take away people's right uh, to their private insurance and kick half of America off of their private insurance. I think there is a better way to do this. And that's strengthening Obamacare 
taking on the pharmaceuticals. On free college for all, I made it very clear. I want to expand Pell Grants, make it easier for kids to go to college. But I don't think, and what, that's what some of these plans do, that we should be using taxpayer money to finance rich kids uh, to go to college. Um, and many of our public universities, something like 10 percent of the kids come from families that make over $200,000 a year. And I think that taxpayer money is better used uh, to get free community college to help Kids get certifications when those are some of the mm -hmm. fastest growing degreed jobs we have in this nation. And so, to me, this is a legitimate policy argument about how we help people afford college, help them pay off their loans, make bold policy changes, which this president is not doing. But I think there's room in our party for a legitimate debate. I just think it's important to realize there's a lot more that unifies us than separate, that there's a lot more that unifies us than there is uh, that divides us. And that divide right now is with mm -hmm. the American people and the president. He promised them pharmaceutical prices going down. They've gone up. He promised them infrastructure. He has okay. done nothing. He promised them a safer world when he got out of the Iranian agreement. It is not safer. That's the case we need to make. All right. We'll look for you on that next debate stage. Thank you very much, Senator Klobuchar. I am very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Martha. We'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. the nation. We are now joined by 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke, who joins us from El Paso. Uh, Congressman, we've had this breaking news overnight, and I'm wondering if, as president, you would continue the diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, and would you accept North Korea as a contained nuclear threat if it refuses to give up its nuclear weapons? You know, I would continue diplomacy contingent on progress that keeps this country and our allies safe. Despite three years of almost bizarre foreign policy from this president, this country is no safer when it comes to North Korea. They have removed none of their nuclear weapons or their potential to deliver them to the United States. And in fact, in contravention of the United Nations, they have launched other missiles uh, flouting the diplomacy that this president has attempted so far. So we've added legitimacy to Kim Jong-un. But it sounds like you're saying you would continue to talk to Kim Jong-un. I want to make sure that we pursue diplomatic, peaceful, nonviolent negotiations to resolve the challenges that we face on the Korean Peninsula okay. and to ensure that we denuclearize that area. We know from your team that you plan to go to Mexico today. What is the purpose of that visit? We'll be going over to Ciudad Juarez today, our, our sister city uh, across the border from El Paso, to meet with asylum seekers who have traveled hundreds, in some cases thousands of miles, fleeing the deadliest countries on the face of the planet, coming to this country trying to follow our asylum laws, and through a program that uh, effectively shuts them out of this country and our laws are forced to stay in Ciudad Juarez, where they are prey to criminal organizations, where they are penniless and where they are suffering and where too many feel like they are forced to try to cross in between our ports of entry, as we saw 
Um, earlier um, this week, a uh, picture of Oscar and Valeria, who died trying to do that from Matamoros to Brownsville. Um, this inhumane policy is causing suffering and death. And I want to call attention to what we are doing. So going to Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and meeting with these asylum seekers is a great way for the American public to know what is being done in our name right now. So do you believe that asylum seekers should be able to apply for asylum from other countries or from Mexico? Yes. I think we should follow our, our own asylum laws that are on the books, uh, our obligations to those people to whom we are connected by land and language and culture, and for whom we have some responsibility given our involvement in the Western Hemisphere that has produced some of the challenges that they face that would cause a family to flee hundreds or thousands of miles to come here. So when we follow our own asylum laws, those people are safer. We live according to our traditions. And in a program that we've proposed, a family case management program, no family is separated. They're not detained in these Border Patrol stations. But that's if they cross into, into the, the United States. And to follow our own laws. What, what you're proposing is when they cross into the United States, I'm asking if they're applying as now from Mexico or from a third country. That is one of the proposed changes also to immigration law now. Yes, I, I think that uh, asylum seekers should be able to apply from their home country. So okay. from Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador to the United States without having to make that journey by foot in the first place. It'll ensure that they are following our laws and it will guarantee greater safety and reduce suffering for them. We are just about a month out from the next debate. Um, during the one this week, you were hit by your colleague from Texas, Julian Castro, who said you need to do your homework. Are you going to change your strategy for the next debate? What I'm going to do is get across what I think we can do as a country. And on the particular issue that you're referring to on, on immigration, uh, under my administration, day one, we are going to stop family separation. We're going to reunite those families who have been separated. We're going to make sure that, that no one who is fleeing persecution or violence is criminally prosecuted. And we're going to follow what I was doing in Congress, where we helped to introduce legislation that would stop this and rewrite Section 1325 of U.S. Code to make sure that those families who are at their most desperate and vulnerable moments do not face further uh, fear when they get to the United States. And then, in addition, we're going to rewrite our immigration laws from the ground up. The, the 9 million green card holders in this country, we're going to waive their citizenship fees so they can contribute even more to our success and our greatness. You'll be uh, reliant on bending Republicans to your will on that. Well, I, I'm not so sure that I'm willing to concede that point. Uh, there are a lot of great candidates running for congressional seats and U.S. Senate seats across this country. I'm confident that 2020 is going to produce a significant change, not just in the White House, but in both houses of Congress. I think that Democratic majority on immigration, on health care, on a more inclusive economy, on confronting the challenge of climate before it's too late, is going to be able to show success for the American people at this defining moment of truth. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Congressman O'Rourke. We'll be right back. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Yesterday, we spoke with Senator Lindsey Graham, who joined us from Istanbul, Turkey. We began our conversation by asking Senator Graham for his take on the president's decision to remove the ban on American companies selling goods to Chinese tech giant Huawei. 
major technology, that would be a mistake. But you don't worry that this is too much of a concession on national security grounds? I don't know yet. Um, it's clearly a concession. There'll be a lot of pushback if this is a major concession. If it's a minor concession, I think it's part of the overall deal. We know President Trump did meet um, with uh, President Erdogan at the G20 as well. And he seems to have the impression that President Trump said there will not be U.S. sanctions if Turkey goes ahead and buys Russian-made weapons systems. Is that the case? Well, I'm in Turkey, and it's being reported in the Turkish media that uh, President Erdogan is claiming that President Trump, in their discussions, told uh, Turkey that if you activate the S-400, we'll find a way around sanctions. Uh, I doubt if that conversation occurred. It's impossible under our law. If Turkey buys the, uh, activates the S-400 missile battery they bought from the Russians, sanctions would be required under law. And we also, a couple of days ago, passed legislation banning the sale of the F-35 to Turkey if they activate the Russian S-400 missile battery. There's no way we're going to transfer to Turkey the F-35 technology and let them buy a Russian missile battery at the same time. It would compromise our platform. But you're not saying sanctions are inevitable at this point. You see a way around them, some kind of compromise? I hope so. But under our law, there is no discretion. If they activate the S-400 Russian missile battery, they will be sanctioned under U.S. law, and the F-35 technology cannot be transferred to Turkey. We need to find a way out of this dilemma. I'm sure you saw that video of Presidents uh, Putin and Trump seeming to laugh when asked about election meddling. Did that concern you? What concerns me is, are we going to be ready for their meddling next time? I've seen this administration up their game. In 2018, we had a midterm election uh, without a whole lot of uh, interference because we're, we're upping our game, so to speak. So it was clearly a joke. But last time you were on this program, you said Russia did not learn its lesson. So when you see this joking about something so serious regarding an upcoming election, doesn't that counter everything in terms of a hard line the rest of the national security community is trying to send? I'm not so sure rebuking Putin in, in front of a bunch of cameras does much good. What hurts him is when you hit him in the pocketbook, his oligarch friends are having a hard time placing their money around the world. We put tremendous sanctions on the Russian economy, particularly in the energy area, and it's biting Russia. So actions mean more than anything uh, in this part of the world. Do you believe that President Trump embracing Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman undermines the U.S. credibility on human rights? Yeah, I don't think it helps. Uh, I led the effort to sanction MBS, the crown prince. There is no doubt in my mind that he ordered the killing of Mr. Khashoggi, that he knew about it, that he's done things like that to other people, uh, and that he's been a disruptive force uh, throughout the region. So I'm in a completely different place when it comes to MBS. Uh, Here at home, I know you've been working with the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and some Democrats as well to try to find some compromise around asylum laws. The president said that he will go through with rounding up migrants after the July 4th holiday. Do you see any legislative compromise? Yes, I do. I spent about an hour with uh, Speaker Pelosi. And here's the compromise. We'll start turning the aid back on to Central America. It is in our national security interest to help the triangle, northern triangle nations with their economy, with their rule of law problems. But if you don't turn off the magnets that attract people, which is our asylum laws, if you don't reform them, they'll keep coming. All you have to do is to put one foot on the United States soil. If you're from Central America with a small child, you're not going to get deported. On that question of children, It was that image of that El Salvadorian father who drowned along with his two-year-old daughter that really captured a lot of attention this week. That was his child. That was not a tool to exploit the asylum system. By warning that asylum is going to get tougher and saying the border might close, doesn't that incentivize people to take the risk in the first place? 
Good question. Uh, here's what I think, and I don't know, and it does break your heart to see that image and the thought that went into it. Here's what I think the father believed. If we can just make it across the Rio Grande, and I can put one foot in America, uh, my child and myself are going to be in America, and we're not going to get sent back. I would like that asylum claim to be made in Mexico at a UN center so that this father doesn't have to risk him and his child drowning in the future. Asylum claims should be made in the home country or in a facility in Mexico because the reason he tried to go across the river, he was told by people in Central America, if you can put one foot on American soil, you're home free. And this is a tragic result of that policy. I want to quickly ask you about your friend, Joe Biden. How do you think he performed in the Democratic debate this week? He's got to up his game. But uh, anybody that knows Joe Biden, there's not a racist bone in his body. That's not a cliche. That's a reality. But uh, the narrative is that maybe it's not his time and that he's not up to the task. Uh, I think you will underestimate Joe Biden at your own peril. I watched the debate the policy options being presented to the country by the leading contenders on the Democratic side are their biggest problem. Uh, pretty liberal, pretty extreme. But when it comes to Joe Biden, I think the next debate, he's got to change the narrative. And one thing I'll say about uh, Kamala Harris, and I said this before, she's got game. She is very talented. She's very smart. And she'll be a force to be reckoned with. Senator Graham, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We'll be right back with more from our political panel. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako. And we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save. It's time now for some political analysis. Edward Wong is a diplomatic correspondent at the New York Times. Shannon Pettypiece is a White House correspondent at Bloomberg News. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at the National Review and a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. And Antoine Seawright is a political strategist. Thank you all for joining us. Antoine, this was a big week for, for you and fellow Democrats in terms of the first round out of the debates. It, what is your takeaway? What needs to change between now and when they take the stage in July? I think our candidates have to realize that they are running for our party's nomination and not against each other. Uh, and I think that's such an important point because what we saw during the debate was some heated fellowship <laughs> among some of our candidates. But I think the the focus was lost on the big picture, and that is we have a race to run next year against the Republicans. I also think that we have to, again, uh, probably sing a little louder on the quality of life issues like health care, um, like the economy, like housing, all the things that Democratic voters are hungry and thirsty for, and not just Democratic voters, independent thinkers, and independent voters, and even some of those voters who may have voted for the president in 16, but voted for Democrats in 2018. And Ramesh, I mean, what you just heard from Senator Graham was he characterized the debate stage as, you know, too extreme. For those who are those triers, those people in the middle, maybe even some Republicans who aren't comfortable with President Trump, is there anyone yet who they'd feel comfortable voting for on that stage? Well, I think that the Democrats right now, uh, the candidates are not concentrating on swing voters. They're not concentrating, certainly, on persuadable Republicans. And the process of winning the primaries may be pushing them too far to the left on some issues. Look, I think that 
the Trump re-election campaign had a very good week, not because of anything the president did, but the front-runner, Joe Biden, got dinged in the debate. Three of his top rivals came out for outlawing the kind of health insurance that 200 million Americans rely on. Um, they are, they are on a, in a race to the left on immigration. Um, all of these things are going to make people who don't necessarily love everything that the president does think, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this other side. But, 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 Margaret, to one point, we saw very few people between the two nights, quote-unquote, play with that, this idea of what Republicans and some in the right-wing media call liberal. What we saw, I think, holistically, was a real center-left type approach to how we govern and what a policy agenda looks like. There was only two people on Wednesday night who raised their hand for Medicare for All, and I think it may have been two on Thursday night. So this idea that the party is driving their car to the left, I think, is just a false narrative, one that the Republicans are pushing because they know it plays well to their base, but Two, uh, the media, some in the media are pushing this narrative because it's good for political conversation. That does not make it true. Mm-hmm. Warren Sanders and Harris are three of the top candidates, and they're all for outlawing this kind of private health insurance that most Americans rely on. Shannon, picking up, pick it up there. With, do you see it as a good week for the Trump re-election campaign? Uh, everything went exactly as the campaign had hoped it would and as they expected it would. Uh, whether they have really gone to the left or not, the Trump campaign will use those moments from the debate to make it look like they moved to the left. Whether swing voters are watching the debate or not, they will cut moments from that debate and use them in campaign ads. That To them, this was a television commercial uh, against the Democrats for their 2020 campaign. Uh, so it, it went exactly as they wanted. And, I, and on the expectation point, uh, they expected Biden to be a bit off his game. They've been sort of talking, their advisors have been talking for a while about feeling like the Joe Biden today isn't Joe Biden of 2012. Uh, they expected Warren to be strong. Uh, they're concerned by her sort of authenticity and on-message brand. And I think Kamala did catch them by surprise, though. Ed, one of the factors here for any big geopolitical calculations is who's going to be in the Oval Office after 2020. There is this perception that whether it's Kim Jong-un or leadership in Iran, that they're waiting out President Trump. Is that factoring in to some of what we're seeing? Right. I think with Iran, it's be, they've been put in a difficult position because the sanctions really are hurting Iran. So I think they have wanted to try and hold out for a change of um, commander in chief in 2020. Now you're seeing them push back a little bit in the Persian Gulf because they think they might not be able to wait out that the sanctions that long. Kim, Kim is a different position. I think he um, has nuclear weapons. He wants to be able to keep them. And as long as he keeps Trump talking in this sort of diplomatic sort of round robin game, then I think he feels comfortable because he gets to keep his weapons. Maybe Trump eases up on sanctions. And then in the end, that's what Kim wants. And that's what, as we heard Mike Morrell say, that might be what the U.S. needs in terms of pushing forward on, on diplomacy. And then maybe the, in the long run, you um, ratchet back the tensions. But right now, you do need some diplomatic opening. As one source said to me, Kim Jong-un has to look at this and say, no president but President Trump would take this level of risk of meeting with me. Right. Um, so maybe there's a narrow window of opportunity. But you heard Senator Amy Klobuchar on here say, well, maybe he would just reduce the number of nuclear weapons. That's different than full denuclearization. Right. Are we seeing him? He's kind of shopping for options. (laughs) I think the stated policy is full denuclearization. I think what we're seeing in this administration, maybe in future administrations, that there might have to be a tacit acceptance of the fact that North Korea is a nuclear power. It's unstated, like with Israel, but um, but that these administrations will have to accept that and figure out how to deal with the nuclear North Korea. I want to go to you, Antoine, on this next. Um, I want to play for all of you uh, what former Vice President Joe Biden came out the day after the debate and said regarding his past record on forced busing. I want to be absolutely clear about my record and position on racial justice, including busing. I never, 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 ever opposed voluntary busing. How big of a misstep was this truly? I don't know if it was a misstep, but I do think the vice president and his team are going to have to make some adjustments going forward. Look, this country and our party has been shaped by the experiences of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And I think we can't lose sight of that. But I also think that we can't ignore or turn the volume down on how the experiences of Kamala Harris um, and how she's been impacted this throughout her life. But I will also say that sometimes a moment doesn't mean it's transferable to 
several moments in the future. And I think that's what we all have to keep in mind. This was one debate. Um, Joe Biden has a strong body of work on issues that have been pro um, civil rights and for the improvement of quality of life for African-Americans, just like Senator Harris. And I think we just have to get back focused to the big picture. And that is quality of life issues of how we go forward. Shannon, the issue, uh, racial issues, though, are coming up on the Trump side of things as well. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. (laughs) sent out a tweet this week um, that questioned whether Kamala Harris was, quote, an American black. Right. It almost sounds reminiscent of the birther argument, as many people have pointed out, um, in 2016. Um, And, of course, with an administration that does not have a great track record with race and has really worked to try and overcome the people, good people on both sides image. Um, They're trying to sell hard the economic argument uh, about black unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, uh, uh, criminal justice reform. But I do think they miss sometimes that with issues of race, it's not always dollars and cents. And it's not always about, you know, we give you money and jobs. Uh, There is a a, a moral sense here and a, a sense of self, too, that if you degrade people in that way, no matter what you can give them financially, it's not going to overcome that. Ramesh, do we need to hear from more Republicans on this. Most of all the Democrat uh, competitors to Kamala Harris have come out in support of her. Well, I don't think that Republicans are afraid of having an argument about busing in the 1970s. Let's recall, busing was unpopular with white Americans. Not terribly popular among black Americans. It's bizarre that the Democrats have latched onto this if they're not, you know, it's not like they're trying to bring it back. On the Republican side, you've got the fundamental problem that you've got a presidency that is not especially sensitive on racial matters, not necessarily thinking about a demographic future with the changing racial composition of this country, and you've got congressional Republicans who don't really want to take them on. That's just the way it's been for three years now. Margaret, your question was about... The the tweet. Com- I, I, tweet. Unfortunately, <laughs> no, you're right, Antoine, but I'm running out of time. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, and 2020 Democratic presidential candidates Senator Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.